the Jewish views on civil partnerships for heterosexual couples. We talk to the woman behind one of the most high-profile legal battles of the last year. Pick's disease, Ivor Badil tells us why he and his brother David decided to make a documentary on their father's condition. And how do eating disorders affect the community as we approach the start of Awareness Week? But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An Israeli soldier who was filmed shooting an injured Palestinian in the head has been sentenced to 18 months in prison for manslaughter. Sergeant Elor Azaria, an IDF medic, shot terrorist Abdel Fattah al-Sharif, who was lying injured on the ground in Hebron in March last year, after he and an accomplice had stabbed an Israeli soldier. However, Azaria only arrived on the scene some minutes later. The incident was captured on camera by a resident and then published by Israeli human rights group Betzalem. Prosecutors had asked for a custodial sentence of three to five years, while Azaria's lawyers argued that it was self-defence, but video evidence showed that was not the case. The president of the National Union of Students, Malia Boatia, will not be punished by the organisation, despite comments made by her which could have been interpreted as anti-Semitic. After an NUS inquiry lasting two months, the professor who wrote the report proposed that Boatia should apologise to escape further action. Professor Carol Baxter, who is the former equality chief of the NHS, wrote that Ms Boatia had expressed regret in a genuine way and had denounced anti-Semitism. The chairman of the campaign against anti-Semitism said that the NUS had shown an utterly shameful disregard for Jewish students. A heterosexual couple have lost their latest battle for the right to enter into a civil partnership. Rebecca Steinfeld and Charles Kaiden, who are Jewish, want to secure legal recognition of their seven-year relationship, but the Civil Partnership Act says only same-sex couples are eligible. The pair, who live in Hammersmith in West London and have a baby daughter, say the government's position is incompatible with equality law. Two rockets were fired into southern Israel from Egypt, landing in the Eshkol region, which borders on Gaza and part of Sinai. The code red alarm didn't sound as the rockets weren't heading into populated areas. There was no damage and no injuries were reported. The attack came a day after the Islamic State, or ISIS, claimed that an Israel Air Force unmanned aerial vehicle struck and killed at least four of the group's members who were in a car travelling near Rafah in Sinai. And finally, two Muslim activists in America who launched a campaign to raise funds for a vandalised Jewish cemetery saw donations triple overnight from £18,000 to £45,000 after the Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling supported it online. She retweeted the story from Jewish News to her 10 million followers. 170 gravestones in the cemetery, which is in St. Louis, Missouri, were toppled by vandals. Palestinian-American Linda Sasser and Tariq El-Masidi said there was no place for this type of hate and violence in America. That's the news. Let's get the sport from Andrew. Thanks, Viv. James Gershfield has set his sights on becoming London Lions' all-time leading goalscorer after he broke the record for most goals scored in a season as he netted his 42nd strike of the campaign at the weekend. Adam Stolleman remains their leading scorer with 134 goals but Gershfield, who's now on 102, said, That's my next target. I don't think I'll beat it this season, but maybe next. Israeli defender Alon Netzer has joined League of Ireland side Derry City. 
The 23-year-old put pen to paper just days ahead of the start of the Irish season and said, I'm excited to be here and want to get started as soon as possible. And finally, cricketer Michael Klinger's career-long wait for a baggy green cap is finally over after he represented Australia in their 2020 international series against Sri Lanka. The 36-year-old, who won a gold medal at the 2007 Maccabee Games, helped the Aussies win the final match, top-scoring with 62 runs, but they lost the series 2-1. You can read the full interviews with Klinger and Gershfield, together with catching up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Front page this week, Richard, a page of two halves. There's the good with the not so good necessarily. Yeah, should we start with the good? We run a annual event now in its second year, so I can call it annual, called the Jewish Schools Awards in association with Pages, the Partnerships for Jewish Schools. This week, we had our ceremony at JW3. It's the Oscars for Jewish teachers. Well, not just Jewish teachers, teachers at Jewish schools. It took place on Wednesday night, and it was, as it says on the front page, a classy affair where we celebrate all that's fantastic about Jewish education. And really, there is plenty to celebrate not only in the people that run the organisations that we celebrate, but also in the numbers, some staggering numbers. There's over 35,000 pupils now studying at Jewish schools, 160 of them up and down the country, and a mere fraction of them were celebrated on Wednesday night at JW3. Excellent. Well, well done to all of the winners. But as we identify that there is also some other news on the front page as well. And the headline reads that uni scraps Israel apartheid week, citing anti-Semitism. Yeah, this is a bit of a, a bugbear for many. There's a nasty little pernicious occasion that's now taking place across campuses predominantly around the world, particularly now in the UK, it seems to be getting more and more momentum called Israel Apartheid Week. It's an opportunity once a year for people that think perhaps less of Israel than than we do to stick the knife in, make some appalling, vile comparisons between Israel today and South Africa of the middle and, and late part of the 20th century. Israel Apartheid Week now could be under some question, shall we say. New government guidelines were adopted a few weeks ago that now seem to put Israel Apartheid Week into a position, shall we say, where it could be deemed to actually be anti-Semitic in terms of government-led guidelines. A university in the UK, Lancashire University, was the first one to say it's actually going to be pulling out of this pernicious little event this week on the back of these guidelines. And obviously we've been calling round, rather Jack here to my left has been calling round many other campuses up and down the country, hoping that this will just be the start of many to come. You know what I find absolutely extraordinary about anyone who takes part in Israel Apartheid Week and their comparison to South Africa, speaking as someone who has South African family and also speaking as someone who's obviously been and loves Israel, the two countries just cannot compare. That's what is so bizarre. And I would hedge my bets that the people who are making this comparison, apart from how ignorant they clearly are, it also goes to show that they've probably had virtually nothing to do with either country. 
Yeah, I think the organisers of Israel Apartheid Week seem to be so detached from the reality of the situation. They have a very one-sided view. They're not looking to debate or engage or look at the facts on the ground. They're looking to present a worldview and pressure people to take up that worldview. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this case here. It's a landmark case where university students who have been enforcing this kind of week of hate upon Jewish students are finally having some opposition. And they don't like it. And they're, and they're claiming that Zionists are trying to shut down free speech and all of the other rhetoric that comes out with these situations. At the end of the day, the government has taken up a new definition of anti-Semitism. And what they're doing is crossing that boundary. So, you know, maybe they should look at themselves and think, if their actions are in any way crossing a boundary of anti-Semitism, maybe they're going a bit too far. Maybe they should hold back a bit. Would be a nice thought to think that someone would step back from themselves and look at them like that. But having said that, I can't help but think that if you're the sort of person who tries to stir up that sort of trouble in the first place, probably not going to be that self-aware. However, there are other stories within the paper. Now, obviously, this is not necessarily a great story to start with. The crux of it is that a Jewish cemetery in America has been vandalised, but it sort of has a positive spin on it eventually, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to pass this one over to the online editor, Jack. This was actually one of the, the high watermarks of, of our week, and it involved the world's most famous author. J.K. Rowling reads the Jewish news. Earlier this week, I was just about to go to bed and I saw a story pop up online about a couple of Muslim activists raising money to repair a vandalised cemetery in America. And a couple of minutes after I'd put it up online, I saw a massive spike in the site's traffic and I was desperately searching why this happened. And then I saw JK Rowling pop up on my newsfeed and she'd shared our story and within about an hour... It had had nearly 10,000 retweets on Twitter and it had gone wide to all different news organisations, Al Jazeera, The Independent, across the world. It was uh, very exciting, but also she helped triple the donations for this fund who were only looking for $20,000 initially. That number is now close to $100,000. So one person has really made a massive difference to that campaign. Doesn't it go to show the difference that an audience, as it were, can make? And by that, I mean that obviously here's someone who has a very loyal following. And just because she has taken an interest in this particular story, look at how it has now spread. And it really does make you stop and think how crazy the world is that we live in in this day and age. Often we're very cynical when it comes to celebrities getting involved in charities and good causes. And, but I think this is a, an, an opportunity to look at where an opinion former can make an absolutely supreme difference. As Jack said, she has tripled, perhaps even now quadrupled. They've now got a surplus of money. So this is for a cemetery in St. Louis in America, and it was desecrated. A couple of Muslim people have decided that they want to appeal for money to actually improve and secure the cemetery after it's been attacked now they have this surplus to deal with it if these things should ever horrifically happen again so yeah it's the, the power of personality particularly someone with a constituency like jk rowling who can is a force clearly for for lots of influential things and particularly good and uh, we're really chuffed and hopefully she'll read next week's paper and be a, a loyal listener to the podcast too oh you'll have her writing a column in the paper before long i'm sure fantastic stuff and let us of course not forget the crux of that is that it is is once again bringing two communities that unfortunately in the mainstream media more often than not are seen as being poles apart closer together. 
Great stuff. Time for one more. And I believe that Showa tourism, as it is known, is on the rise. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, peculiar one, this. Certainly something that's made me feel slightly uncomfortable when I've been at sensitive locations. There's a documentary maker called Shahak Shapira, and he has done a documentary where he has literally just gone around Holocaust commemoration sites, death camps, memorials, this sort of thing, and just filmed tourists and their demeanour and their conduct and how they behaved. Now, these places are, are cemeteries. They're memorials to the dead. They're the memorials to the, the, the horrors of, of the last century. And he's filming people goofing around, chatting. These are young people taking selfies. And he's asking the question, is, is this appropriate conduct has conduct in these places changed in recent years as social media mobile phones and these sort of devices become more common and should you intervene perhaps tap someone on the shoulder and and suggest this is inappropriate conduct for a cemetery there was an infamous picture which we've republished from 2014 of an american tourist who posed this very very cheery selfie of herself with the torture chambers of auschwitz in the background with the caption selfie at Auschwitz concentration camp smiley face so these things clearly they're they're going they're seeing they're hopefully empathizing and understanding but is this really the sort of behavior that we should expect at these places fascinating to hear your Jewish views as well on this so if you do want to please feel free to email studio at jewishviews.co.uk but I'm afraid that is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week but thank you both very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk A heterosexual couple from West London lost a high court appeal this week to enter a civil partnership. Rebecca Steinfeld and Charles Caden say that they want to secure their seven-year relationship legally, but don't agree with some of the patriarchal baggage that comes with marriage. Well, I'm pleased to say that on the line now is Rebecca Steinfeld. And Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us. Perhaps you could start by just reminding us about your story so far. So my partner, Charlie, and I decided in November 2013 that we wanted to formalize our commitment to each other. And we had one of those very serious conversations about how we wanted to cement our relationship and express our love. And it was very much in terms that we already use. So we already see each other as partners in life and we really want to be partners in law. At the time, there was a case that was going through the European Court of Human Rights that was challenging what was then the twin ban on same-sex marriage and on mixed-sex civil partnerships in England and Wales. And we thought that case would be successful. So we decided that we would become civil partners because at that time that seemed something not only desirable for us, but also possible. And I'm afraid to say we put an announcement in the Jewish Chronicle and not the Jewish News. Um, That's okay. You you and so many others, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So to, to announce our forthcoming civil partnership, unfortunately, the government only legalized same sex marriage. Now, of course, that long overdue and very hard won victory should be absolutely celebrated um, and I don't think that the social significance of same-sex marriage can be can be overstated and we campaigned within the Jewish community actually for marriage equality with some friends of ours we set up a, a group called British Jews for Equal Marriage so we were thrilled 
that finally there was equal marriage, but we were disappointed that there still wasn't full relationship equality in the UK because civil partnerships were still only limited to same-sex couples. And so we decided to take action, essentially. We went to Chelsea Register Office and we tried to give notice of our intention to form a civil partnership, but we were asked by the registrars if we were the same sex when we said no. They turned us away and asked us to leave, and that was that. And so then we sought legal advice and went to an amazing solicitor who quite passionate feminist solicitor who'd helped the journalist Caroline Criada Perez um, challenge the Bank of England to keep women on UK banknotes. She's responsible for, for winning that case and we'll have Jane Austen on the forthcoming £10 note. So we knew she was a kindred spirit and um, we approached her and she told us that legally speaking, we could go against both the register office and also the government. So in December 2014, we um, lodged our case and we were given permission at that point to go ahead against the government only because it was deemed that the register office was just abiding by the law essentially and so that's what we did we went to the high court in January 2016 and sadly lost our case but we were given leave to appeal and we did and our case was heard in the court of appeal in last November and then the the verdict just came out a couple of days ago and it went against us but it went against us very narrowly it was a split decision two to one And on so many points, the judges agreed with us and with each other. They, all three of them, said that um, we were being treated differently because of our sexual orientation, that that affects our family and private life. All three of them said that this argument that we often hear of you could just get married, that that's not a sufficient justification because for us, we are conscientiously objecting to marriage because of its symbolism and its cultural associations, which we find deeply problematic. Well, I I Um, do need to ask you about that, Rebecca, because there'll be so many people listening to this right now thinking, why not just get married? Yeah, I mean, we we hear that a lot. What's gratifying is that the judges recognised that that's not the right response, that for whatever reasons, lots of people feel profoundly uncomfortable with marriage. I mean, at the same time, of course, marriage is... There are a great many people, a beautiful, very meaningful expression of their love for one another. And we respect and appreciate that. But at the same time, for lots of reasons, different people don't feel comfortable with marriage. They may have had a very negative experience of marriage themselves, either their own previous marriage or their parents' marriage. They might feel that it's too establishment. They might have deep reservations about the religious associations. Um, For us, it's slightly different. For us, it's to do with the patriarchal history of marriage and the fact that that patriarchal history lingers on in certain legal elements of marriages, it still exists in this country today, such as the fact that in the marriage register, there's still only space for the fathers of the parties being married and not the mothers, despite the fact that David Cameron pledged in response to a campaign against that, that he would introduce marriage registers that included both mothers and fathers. But that's not the case yet. In law, you're still husband and wife. And those terms have associations with them that we don't feel comfortable with. And since there are already civil partnerships, they already exist. They're a modern institution, simple civil contract. We're not asking for anything to be created from scratch just to suit our very specific preferences. All we're asking for is just that they're open to everybody. And to do that, all the government needs to do is remove six little words from the Civil Partnership Act 2004 that states that eligibility for civil partnerships is dependent on being of the same sex. That's it. It's so simple. There is obviously a Jewish side to you both because you've obviously said that you announced it in the Jewish Chronicle that your Mm -hmm. intention was to become civil partners. Mm -hmm. Is there any communication, say, with your synagogue? Have you maybe thought of some sort of spiritual service from that sense that might be able to satisfy the need to at least establish that you are joined together somehow? 
I mean, I think that there are two issues here. One is enabling couples to express their love for each other and formalize their relationships in ways that are meaningful to them and in keeping with their values. And I think that creating our own ceremony, however we did it, whether we did it in conjunction with a particular synagogue or rabbi, or whether we created our own ceremony, which is, in fact, what we did when, when we um, had our daughter in 2015, we designed our own Brit Shalom baby welcoming ceremony for her that sort of fused a lot of our Jewish cultural heritage with our liberal values. And it was really beautiful. To fulfill that side of things, of course, we could we could do something like that. But the crucial point here is that we would still be legally and financially unprotected. We wouldn't have a legal status through doing a service like that. Mm. And there are three million cohabiting mixed-sex couples in the UK with two million dependent children. It is the fastest growing family type. And those couples lack financial and legal protections, which is particularly an issue for women because in general, it's women who tend to give up work full-time or entirely when they have children, there's a gender pay gap. So often you can have situations where women in these long-term cohabiting relationships are much more financially vulnerable and weak. And if the relationship ends in separation or the death of one of the parties, as they inevitably will at some point, they can find themselves really screwed. You know, it's one of these things where a ceremony is one thing, but having that legal status and recognition and protection is just as, if not more important. And that's what civil partnerships could do, opening them up to everybody. It wouldn't necessarily be a solution for, for all cohabiting couples because some cohabiting couples are, on principle don't want the state to be involved in their private affairs. Some of these cohabiting couples are under the misapprehension that there is some kind of common law marriage in this country and that they're sort of automatically protected and, and are not aware that they need to enter into a marriage or a civil partnership in order to have that protection. But for those of us who are keenly aware that we're vulnerable and really do want to have protection and legal status, but for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable with marriage, they should have the option of a civil partnership and those kinds of protections. They shouldn't be left vulnerable because they don't feel that marriage is right for them. Well, naturally, we wish you all the best and thank you so much for telling us your story. Rebecca Steinfeld there on why she and her partner Charles are seeking to obtain a civil partnership. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havardi and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. They'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about with Rebecca, the Institute of Marriage, and whether heterosexual couples should be allowed to enter into a civil partnership. Plus, Diana Toman shall be speaking to Philippa Carr from Jamie, ahead of Eating Disorder Awareness Week. But first, figures released by the Alzheimer's Society show that there are 850,000 people living with dementia in the UK. A Channel 4 documentary aired on the evening of Monday the 20th of February looked into one particular sufferer's case, Colin Badil, the father of David and our next guest, Ivor Badil. Colin has a strain known as Pick's disease. The brothers made the documentary to raise awareness of the condition. And entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Ivor to find out more. Kate started by asking Ivor how he feels the documentary has been received. Well, very well. Really, really pleasing. It's been a very interesting process. You know, as, as we've both said, as David has said, it's, it wasn't an easy decision 
put my father on on mm-hmm. film and expose him to so many people. Was he okay uh, about it? Did you have to kind of? I mean, how could you or could you get consent uh, for him to be filmed before? Well, no, not really. I mean, you know, in the moment, yes, he obviously was aware of the cameras there, and we asked him permission in, in the moment, but. You know, his his memory being what it is, it wouldn't be fair to say it was proper consent. So that that's a very difficult one. And, you know, there's still angst. And, you know, if people say we shouldn't have done it, I think that's a valid point of view. And may, maybe it was the wrong thing to do. But I think the the pros outweighed the cons. And, and also we had a lot of editorial control as to how he was portrayed. I mean, nobody obviously had any interest in making a film that made him or anybody look, you know, yeah. look bad. Over um, what period but, but did you we, film? We, we were given a lot of control as to you know how he was portrayed. So I've written a piece in in, in this week's Jewish News, uh, which sort of on one level explains why why we did it. I mean, without going into you know the detail of that, but you know dementia and it's just it's the biggest killer in this country now of all people, not just old people, and it's on the rise and it's a terrible, terrible yeah. prospect for anybody. What was? What do you think was your main motivation for getting the the, the documentary made? Well, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, this this isn't really in the documentary, but when my father was at his worst, my mother sadly died uh, just over two years ago. And cut a long story short, we we wanted to we we were advised and we thought it'd be a good idea to try and get my father in a home. And we went to visit some homes, and uh, this is the three of me and my two brothers, and speaking to the staff there. You know, we we explained to them that my father could be quite difficult, quite challenging, and to you know to our faces they said, "Oh, don't worry, we're very used to people like that." And then they met him and to assess him, and, and they basically all turned him down. They said, "No, I'm afraid we could, we can't deal with his behaviour." And this is because this Pick's disease it was, it was quite an advanced level. Do you want to just, if you can, just sort of sum up for those people who may not have seen the the documentary yet, what what he's actually got. Well, he, it's an interesting one as well. He's, di- he's diagnosed as having Pick's disease. I mean, there was originally some debate between experts as to whether that's the correct diagnosis, but there's certainly he's got some sort of frontotemporal lobe uh, dementia. And, and this is one of the reasons for doing the documentary. I think most people, certainly myself, when they think of dementia, they think predominantly of Alzheimer's, and there are actually 200 different variants of dementia, and they think predominantly of memory loss. Now, obviously, that is a factor in my father's dementia, but... I would say more pressingly, if you like, it was for a long time, he was very disinhibited and was exhibiting very challenging behaviours. He was particularly sexual, his behaviour, particularly sexually aggressive towards women. He was spitting at times. He got thrown out of a a Jewish daycare centre because he got into a fight. And really, you know, the the disinhibition was something, I don't think people necessarily associate these sort of challenging behaviours with dementia, but Believe you me, as, as people who, you know, families who are dealing with it will know in, in a lot of cases that that's yeah. incredibly challenging and difficult to deal with. And that's what we wanted to highlight. And that and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any provision for people like that. You know, so we tried to get my father into a home. The only place that, that said they might be able to take him uh, said they would only do so with additional one to one care. Um, so he would have to have somebody, as well as all the, the, the regular staff, he would have to have an extra person there the whole time. And if I remember correctly, that, that was going to run into the region of £5,000 a week. Oof, right. Um, yeah, which is, is beyond virtually anybody's means. How long did the filming uh, take, actually? Just over what period of time? Because you do see over the documentary a sort of, sort of unfortunate decline. 
Yes, well, I mean, you know, the thing now, as you see in the documentary, unfortunately, uh, last summer he got quite ill. He was actually in hospital three separate occasions with what was originally a urine infection and then affected his kidneys. And it was terrible, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, I thought, I thought it was all over. Um, but actually, pleasingly, on one level, physically, he must be quite, you know, quite healthy. Yeah. Because he, he, came, he came through it each time. But the corresponding mental effect was that, yes, he, he was much quieter. You know, he, he was less himself. And what the film points out in his case is that he, he with disinhibition, he became a sort of exaggerated version of himself. He was always quite a sort of gruff, sweary bloke. But, you know, in the past, he, he knew where to draw the line, whereas with the yeah. Pick's disease, he didn't. And for um, those who don't know Pick's disease, if you have always had a, you know, somewhat sort of a loud, not even, no, I don't mean the word Larry, but, you know, sort of, a, as you, you to use your word, sweary, mm. what made you notice that there was... A problem. What was the first inkling that you had that mm, this isn't this is really well, not on? Yeah, to be fair, I mean, the, the first inkling was the sort of memory memory loss side of it. He, he was sort of more forgetful, and and David was the one who who first picked up on it and thought some, something might be wrong, and then he went for the, the sort of fairly standard tests that you, you go for. Um, and initially, it, it was the memory loss, but then, I mean, this is, this is where it's very difficult. I mean, the, the disinhib- disinhibition kicked in. To an extent, but also, I mean, I think, and this is a whole other area of people with dementia. You know, clearly, my mother dying had a had an effect on him that's very difficult to gauge because he couldn't vocalise it, he couldn't remember it for a long time. So I think, as David says in the documentary, I mean, one of the probably the worst day of my life, you know, was well, the worst weekend of my life was the weekend my mother died. But you know. Also, along with that, we had to tell my father, and then we had to tell him again, and we had yeah. to tell him again and again. And, and the fact know, that there was, was that uh, in the documentary, you can see that the card that you'd written by the phone reminding him that must be also well, a reminder to you. Yes, eventually we, we had to, we were advised to do that. I mean, it was very difficult. He, he was asking, obviously, where, where my mother was, and, and it just feels weird not telling him. But then every time we told him what happened, he kind of went into a sort of shock. So that wasn't good. And then eventually we were sort of advised by a psychiatrist, psychogeriatrician, to sort of just sort of say, that, well, she's not here at the moment, which wasn't actually a lie per se. But it, it kind of ticked all the boxes, if you like. It stopped him having to deal with the shock every single time. And it didn't feel as bad as, as yeah. not telling him the truth, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, given that David's, doing this show all about your family and you've had this documentary sort of all about your private life and your family. Do you ever feel to some extent you've lost your privacy? Do you feel a bit overexposed? I don't personally, no. You know, well, I mean, I'm not a celebrity and, you know, people aren't (laughs) interested in other aspects of my private life. I mean, and I think David's chosen to expose... (laughs) <laughs> of my mother's life in his show, uh, and more, and more of my, my you know my father's life, but he he does it in a very sort of warm, intelligent, thoughtful, challenging way, and, and there's no doubt my mother would have absolutely loved it, being the sort of person she was, despite the fact that it's incredibly revealing. I mean, one um, of the lovely things about seeing the documentary was the fact that how how close, what the fact, you, you, there's something about all of you that look very similar. There's a real theme going on there. Not quite the same cookie cutter, but definite theme. What would yes. what would happen if one of you, any of any of you, wanted to expose more about the family than the other? How would you how would you limit that? Well, it depends what you mean, really. 
It, it's a difficult one. I mean, everyone has a, their own story to tell. It's David's story. It's part of his life. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, a, it's an odd one because before he did the show, he sat down with me and Dan and we, he talked us through it and we, we knew, you know, knew sort of what he was going to do and how far he was going to go. And, and to be honest, you know, some other people sort of, it almost feels as if they were telling me I should be upset and I should be angry. And, you know, you you can't fake that sort of thing. You either are upset yeah. and angry or you're not. You kind of feel it in the pit of your stomach. And and I wasn't. When I went to see the show for the first time, I genuinely loved it. For me, you know, I, I said at the time, it, it was a bit as if he brought my mother back to life in some way oh. in the room. And I, I did love it. And it felt in some respects in the lunacy of what has been my family history. It was just another... It felt quite natural for my mother's sex life to be exposed to the world. Well, thank you so much. And I think you've become, I wouldn't exactly say, sort of the poster boys for actually dealing with it. But it's been extremely eye-opening for everybody and hopefully will lead to some research. It's a difficult decision putting my father on television like that. But he comes over very well and, and hopefully, yes, it will prompt more research and more people to open up about it. Amazing. You really, really do have to value every moment with loved ones, don't you? Ivor Badil there telling entertainment and culture editor Kate Fulton why he and his brother made a documentary about their father, Colin, and his battle with Pick's disease. If you would like more information on Pick's disease and a link to where you can watch the documentary, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, you can check out our brand new website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, the 27th of February sees the start of Eating Disorders Awareness Week. The Jewish community is often synonymous with food, but how aware are we about the struggle some of us have, like all walks of life, with food? Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Philippa Carr from Jamie to find out how exactly it affects the community. Diana started by asking Philippa to give us the definition of the term eating disorder. So an eating disorder means that an individual's relationship with food has become disrupted in some way. It's become a problem in their lives. Eating disorders really do interrupt people's lives socially, in relationships, in families. Eating disorders can cause people, as I say, a a big issue, a big problem. So somebody with an eating disorder has a relationship with food that is a problem for them in their lives. They may binge eat, they may eat a lot and then make themselves sick, as in the case of bulimia. They may binge, uh, they may have a binge eating disorder, which 
makes them put on a lot of weight or they may have anorexia nervosa which means that they will not be eating for prolonged periods of time or being very specific about what they do eat and be really looking for the one or two things perhaps that they're still eating. If I link anorexia and binge eating under the heading of eating disorders just for the sake of this chat of ours could that be misconstrued perhaps as rather than a mental problem it's a bit of a physical problem well eating disorders are very complex and there's still a lot of research going on we do know that they do have if you like a brain chemical component and we do know that there may be some individuals who are more predisposed to experiencing eating disorder in their lives than others. However, anorexia and bulimia and binge eating are recognised as mental health problems. And as such, people can get treatment and support and therapy and in some cases hospital admissions due to these conditions. I know and we all know that Jamie does an extraordinary amount of fantastic work And I understand that as from next week, in other words, the 27th of February, you're organising or taking part in an eating disorder week, is that right? Going into schools and places like that? Well, Jamie continuously goes into schools all year round. We do know that young people today are very burdened by issues around eating and food and body image. I guess it's really important to remember that eating disorders are about feelings. They find their expression through the way people eat and relate to food. But at the end of the day, an eating disorder is about somebody's relationship with themselves and with the world, their feelings, as I say, rather than just a relationship with food. It's a lot more complex than that. But certainly we do know that young people talk a lot about body image, think a lot about body image, and that for some young people, again, this becomes a big problem. And for some young people, obviously, that does develop into an eating disorder. Well, actually, that leads nicely on to my next point I was going to ask you whether you feel that the internet and social media as a whole uh, puts perhaps an element of pressure on people in terms of their body image people get to see other people's lives through social media and the like what do you feel about that I think that the media has always played a part in individuals experiences and perceptions of what it is to be okay body-wise. And I think some of us do measure ourselves by perhaps celebrities that we like in, you know, in the media or pop stars or actors. We might, you know, we might think of ourselves and compare ourselves to those people. But you know what, that's something that we all do from time to time. That does not constitute a mental health problem. We live in a very competitive society. We do live in a society where of the selfie, I'd like to say, where we're constantly looking at ourselves through our own, literally our own lens, through our own phones, or the lenses and uh, images that other people take of us. So there's a lot of scrutiny. So that in itself can make somebody with an actual eating disorder feel 
I guess, self-critical. People with eating disorders often have low self-esteem and they often feel worthless. Uh, Eating disorders can run alongside depression and anxiety disorders. So it's part of the complex picture of what isn't helpful, but it doesn't cause eating disorders per se. I'm going to put you a hypothesis here. Supposing we say that a family member hasn't recognised for themselves yet that they might have a problem, but someone looking at the bigger picture or someone who's listening to this and is concerned about a family member thinks that they do actually have a problem, what would you advise them to do? I think the stress and anxiety around young people's in particular relationship to food does loom large in a parent's thoughts and concerns and obviously if you have noticed that your child or indeed your sibling or you know another friend or relative has consistently changed their relationship with food i.e. this hasn't just been going on for a week this is a consistent pattern they are dropping meals significantly or they are excluding major food groups that they would previously have included and as I say this is persistent they're talking a lot about food or they seem to be withdrawn they seem to uh, socially not being interacting as much as usual all those sorts of things that we would associate with many different mental health issues if those things are persistent for your friend or relative then yes you need to pick a moment to have a conversation with them you have to be careful what you say People who do have an eating disorder often feel very sensitive of the judgment of others. And also, if they are experiencing eating disordered behavior, um, they can often distort what you say in their mind, you know, due to the eating disorder. So, for example, if you say to somebody, oh, you're looking great at the moment. I really like that dress you're wearing. This can be misinterpreted by somebody with an eating disorder as a criticism, as saying they're fat or unattractive. So we have to be so careful. So I would stay out of the way. Do not talk about actual body shape or putting on or taking off weight. But actually try to get to the feelings part of this. So actually say to somebody, you know, I am a bit worried about you, you seem a bit low at the moment, or your behavior is changing a little bit. I'm just wondering what's going on? You know, um, is there anything I can do to help? You know, can we have a chat? And actually try and talk to somebody about their feelings without talking too much about the food really does make you think, doesn't it? We poke fun at our community for loving food and yet we hardly give a second's thought to those who really struggle when it comes to eating. Philippa Carr from Jamie talking to community editor Diana Toman there about eating disorders to coincide with the start of Eating Disorders Awareness Week on the 27th of February. For more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to a fascinating article that features in this week's Jewish News about eating disorders. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts. 
The subject today is based on what we heard Phil talking to Rebecca Steinfeld about. Rebecca is one half of a heterosexual couple from West London who lost their High Court appeal this week to enter a civil partnership. This high-profile case has raised many questions, such as why can't heterosexual couples have the same rights as homosexual couples? Also, it begs the question, why not just get married? Of course, Rebecca herself answered that. Jeremy, let's start with you. Do heterosexual couples need to have the same rights as homosexual couples, do you think? Well, I think if we're going to live in a fair society, the answer is yes. And there was actually, in this particular case, the judges judges pointed out that there was an anomaly, that there was an inequality that would have to be addressed, even though they actually rejected this couple's case. And I think it's fair to say that one could easily say to this couple, as indeed has been put to them, why don't you just get married? Why don't you just solidify your commitment formally and legally? And of course, one one can put that argument to them, but one could equally put that argument, I guess, to a gay couple and say, you don't need to have a civil partnership. You should instead just get married. The, the, The point being, Clive, that up until gay marriage was introduced, the argument surely was, well, look, in order to take advantage of the things that a normal married couple can do, a gay couple should at least have civil partnerships so that, for example, the laws of inheritance can apply and so on. Can I now, just ask, what's normal in a normal married couple? Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. No, that, that, that was a mistaken point, or mistaken nomenclature, I should say. So right. I meant a heterosexual couple, but okay. of course that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in any way passing judgment no, on those no, I understand. What I'm saying is, is that now that we do have marriage for, for both heterosexual couples and for homosexual couples, and you know, rightly so, in a way you can't make the argument anymore. If a heterosexual couple choose not to get married and they wish to have a civil partnership, it's going to be harder now to justify it, surely. Well, what do you think? Oh, it's so tricky. If gay people have the option, why should heterosexual people not? But there again, what's the point of it? Just live together. Who are you proclaiming your love to? If you love each other, that's enough if you don't want to get married. But you know what you're saying about it? It's equal on both sides. Now, in fact, a gay religious Jewish couple cannot get married. I think there was a a couple married in a synagogue, in a reform synagogue. But say there were two gay men who wanted to marry in an orthodox synagogue, they could not do it. But that's Mm. a religious-based thing. That's not a societal-based thing. Well, this is an equally true argument as the one used by Rebecca. In so can I ask you, Clive, what's your surname? My surname is Roslyn. What's your father's surname? What was his surname? His surname was different. How was it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that just typifies this kind of conversation. But my point is, you take your father's name. You don't take your mother's name. The bride changes her name. Not always. Not always. In general, we're happen. talking about traditional marriages. I know even a religious Jewish couple where the bride always uses her maiden name. Sure. And what do you think the percentage of women that use their maiden names is? Getting very higher. Very small. But very small. Why is it getting higher? Well, Because it's a patriarchal system, marriage. It is not beneficial for a woman to get married for many reasons. For many reasons, it is beneficial, far more beneficial for a man. it's an awfully silly reason not to get married. Surely, what, if, what you is, love, if you love someone and you want to have children with them and bring the children up, surely there's a, a Jewish... We're talking now particularly about a Jewish couple. 
I don't think it matters about the religion here. I think what matters is about the humanitarian side of this. And I personally understand why this couple don't want to get married. Rebecca... Has, she's frightened, in other words. No, I think she has very... St- I don't think she's frightened at all. I think it's quite the opposite. I think she seems a very confident and a very strong and very powerful woman. Jeremy, do you believe I believe that? that she has feminist beliefs, well, and I, rightly so. Look, I, I happen to... Per- I've listened to what she said. I don't necessarily agree that the objections that she's got would necessarily warrant never getting married. I mean, yes, I can understand there's the element of patriarchy and there's the change of surname and there's the fact that the father signs and not the mother. I understand all that. As I say, I, I don't I think it warrants not actually getting married, but one has to look at the big spectrum of things here. And I, I, would, I would make this point. Marriage between a couple who have children is beneficial because if the couple are married as opposed to simply cohabiting, it's far, far less likely that they'll actually split up. And this is shown by, by many different statistical measures. I would say that if you're going to be a couple with children and you want to have the most stable relationship, marriage would seem to be something that is optimal. Now, unfortunately, nowadays, if you try and make that argument, you're regarded as a kind of screaming extremist. Well, you're making the argument between marriage and cohabitation. Now, a civil partnership is a legal and a very public statement that is a contract between two people. Marriage is a traditional union that originally was based on two families securing the future of of their children it it was when did a a woman ever have any say in the marriage originally when a marriage was set up a marriage was set up for the woman who had no social welfare available to her to live she relied entirely on the on the husband she had no power but but hold on but, but then what you're saying in a way is an argument for this couple having what they want because Unfortunately, for heterosexual couples, as this case has shown, cannot have, at the very least, the protection, if you like, of the civil partnership. Now, I would argue either scrap civil partnerships altogether so everybody just has marriage if they want or allow equality. I've always believed in gay equality. I've argued for gay equality so strongly for many, many years. All right, but marriage does not benefit a female. If it were the case at the moment, if it were legal, does that question still apply? And they get everything. with same sex. Exactly. As Jeremy said a moment ago, everybody gets married. Or, if, or, or both a heterosexual and a homosexual couple can take advantage of civil partnerships if yeah, they decide absolutely. if that's what they want. I mean, they might not want to go the full step of having a traditional marriage. So, but even, even the terminology we're using, the f- a full step towards marriage, why is a civil partnership not a full step? A civil partnership can be just as meaningful and just as strong a bond, and often more so. Was it over fifty percent of marriages end in divorce? So why are we so hung but, up on marriage being are, such a wonderful look institution? Look at it from the Jewish point of view. You're from a religious Jewish family, and it would be no way would a Jewish civil partnership be recognised. By, perhaps by the authorities, but I'm sorry, I think it's more important that the individuals involved in the marriage. Uh, recognise what they have between them. In the same way that a civil partnership or a marriage between homosexuals wouldn't be recognised by the authorities of Judaism or, or, or many well, no, major religions. I said earlier, they are. There's been, there was, uh, there was a, a wedding in, I think it was in Barclay Street, Reform Synagogue. Reform Synagogue. That's not the authorities accepting it. That is a reformed version of the religion accepting it. And that is the whole point of reformation of any religion. is to allow these things to develop. But... The Orthodox Jewish board will not recognise gay marriage. So it's just completely, it's, it's a whole different thing. It's not a religious thing that we're talking about here. It, it has religious connotations because that's where it stems from. But this is a societal thing. But why should 
this couple, and we heard Rebecca talking about it, why should they want a civil partnership? Why shouldn't they? They want to express their love for each other. They basically want to have a relationship where they can say, just like married people, we are a team, a unit together. We have rights. We, Our children will see us as a, a couple that are bonded together. If they're cohabiting, they don't have any legal rights. Really, you can cohabit and you, mm. you split up and you get nothing. No uh, one gets anything. You take your mm. own. That's dangerous. It is dangerous. So God let's forbid say, I got divorced, I want to take his as well, let alone my own. <laughs> <laughs> and we say it's women that don't want to get married. Gosh. Perhaps I'm just too old-fashioned, but I just cannot see why a man and a woman cannot have an absolutely true bond, a marriage to Because me. marriage does not let you have a true bond in that sense, an equal bond. Really a marriage is based on very antiquated values, whereas a civil partnership is based on more on, on modern society. How? In the sense that marriage is based on a woman only being able to survive in life if she's got a man to look after her. That's not how we live in this day and age. Jeremy, do you actually agree with what he's saying? I, I, I don't. I mean, I... Sometimes I do take issue with, with what Adam says, but I mean, this, this I'm afraid I take a very strong issue with. I, I don't really understand where that view comes from. I think in marriage, you can easily have a couple having a very, each person having a very successful career if that's what they wanted. They can each, you know, forge their own path in life. But that's not the norm. That's, we're well, talking about 50 the years norms. Ago, Nowadays, even today, the norm is that the woman stays at home. She has the choice more now. Well, but far it far less, it far less so than it used to be. That's less so, but case, look, yeah. at, look at Jeremy, you were married recently. Yes. Would you say that applied to you in that any sense? Uh, no, Would absolutely not. My, uh, my, my wife has had a very, very successful career and will continue, no doubt, to have a very successful career. I mean, yes, there are, there are going to be cases. Of course, there are going to be plenty of cases where you'll have a choice being made by the female in the relationship to be the nurturer you know what, what we would half a century ago have called the traditional role but you know things have changed so much and think uh, relationships are much more fluid than they used to be and it's it's no longer the case yeah, oh. i know of at least two couples who have been married for some years and who have children where the father stays at home and looks after the children and the mother who has a marvelous yeah, of career course it happens my cousin does that well there you are but that's, but that's one person exception. in my entire family it's, no, it's one that you've said and two that i've said right then. and i could name you millions that aren't like that it's not yeah. the norm clive i'm sorry you can't make an argument it's... based on the odd incident well you I have to look at them to you i mean no but look at look at the marriage ceremony itself how sexist is that? The girl walks really? around, the boy... Exactly. Seven times, she he wears, doesn't get She giggling. wears a white dress to show her virginity. What the hell's that all about? They say to the man, you may kiss the bride. That is absolute sexism. Why should he? Why shouldn't he say, say to the bride, now you may allow your husband to kiss you? Or you can say to the bride, you may now kiss uh, the uh, groom. Are we seriously it's questioning all based on sexism? <laughs> are we questioning the sanctity of marriage? Because it's, would you like to kiss the bride? And she could break marriage. the glass. But why not? <laughs> we are questioning the entire basis yeah. of marriage being an antiquated system that favours the man. Who gives this woman to be... To the it man. Doesn't, it yeah. doesn't. The father the gives his daughter to her husband. I mean, how sexist is that? Who the hell is he? She doesn't belong <laughs> to he, her father or her husband. 
Well, uh, I, I I think your argument is a little bit over the top. I, I, think, I would I, say I the same about I'm yours, afraid that we have to, we have, to we have a revolution brewing here. We have to end the discussion at this point, and everybody can make up their own minds what they think. And my thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbridge. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. UK, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, all our details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now to come back down to earth for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. In this week's Torah reading, the narrative takes a completely different direction. Until now, it's been about slavery in Egypt, Exodus, the plagues, crossing the sea and receiving the Torah. But now we get into the nuts and bolts of the laws, the Mishpatim, which enable the Israelites to create a functional, harmonious and fair society, first in the desert, then the land of Israel, and of course later in the diaspora. At the heart of these laws are ideas that seem to be very prosaic, mundane. An ox goring another ox, someone digging a hole, and a person or an animal falling in and getting hurt. Laws surrounding person and property, And it's hard initially to square that with the idea of a holy society. This question is explored by a passage in the Talmud. Moses goes up to heaven to receive the Torah. And in it, he finds kinds of laws of the sort we're describing. The angels say, why should someone born of a woman, meaning a human being, why should a human being be given these laws? God says to the angels, do you have oxen that they can get hurt? Do you have parents that they need to be respected and cared for? And every time the angels answer no. And of course, Moses wins and gets the Torah and brings it back to the world. What the rabbis are saying is that we can deal with lofty spiritual ideas. But unless we're capable of building a society where there's respect for person and property, we're going nowhere with our spirituality. Sometimes spiritual thinkers forget about this. Sometimes people who wish to be spiritual and religious may overfocus on the ritual side of life, which is extremely important, but can never sacrifice to the social laws that govern a functional society. They come first after that spirituality. Somehow, I think it's fair to say that we're all guilty of putting our beliefs over each other from time to time. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Bolofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guest, Rebecca Steinfeld, talking about civil partnerships. All the best to her and her partner, Charles. Iva Badil, please do watch the documentary on all four. We'll have a link on our website. To Philippa Carr, talking about eating disorders ahead of Awareness Week on the 27th of February. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. 
I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.